Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. I've been a cop for 27 years. I like to say I got a backstage pass to life. Well, guess what? I got some tickets for you. So come on in, pull up a chair, turn up that volume, and let's go. Chasing Justice is on. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Chasing Justice with your host, Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. Well, the world just got more affordable thanks to President Biden. That is, of course, if you are a person that has student loans and you make less than $125,000, he's going to remove $20,000 if you went to college on Pell Grants and $10,000 if you took regular loans. So who does that apply to? Well, I know I did some college last last uh, year, but I, I certainly don't qualify for that. You have to make less than $125,000. And I guess that means most students that file income tax... Uh, if they filed income tax and they made less than 125000 I guess they could have some of their debt removed. So I know that a lot of family and friends with kids in college have, what, what if you graduated last year and you still owe that debt? Can you, can you take that off? Is that a good thing for our country? How about the people who struggle to pay for their college and they don't get any benefit, but who happens to be in school now gets benefit? Is this buying votes? Or is this a legitimate way to help the American people? I'm skeptical. Will it help these young people? Uh, of course it will. Uh, if you owe 20000 on college loans and now you only owe 10000 that certainly will benefit you. But who's going to pay for that? Is that something uh, you're going to pay for, for these kids? I think that's the way it's going to work out. It's three. $100 billion, I think they said the price tag on this, $300 billion at a time when we are running the highest inflation in 40 years. Our budget is completely out of control. Uh, but, you know, of course, if you say this, then, then you, you just want to burden these kids with money. No, uh, my children owe money on their college educations. Uh, they all took some loans. Uh, I took all the rest of the loans to, to send them because that was my responsibility and my job. But we want to make sure they had some skin in the game, so to speak. So we had them take some loans so that they understood the cost of a college education, the value of it, and how they were uh, lucky to be able to get to go to college. So I don't know, I don't know how this is going to work out, who it's going to work out for. I'm not sure. The other big topic that's going on is uh, the raid at Mar-a-Lago. Now, I was on... Uh, program with Malcolm, the great Malcolm out loud recently. And we talked about the raid at Mar-a-Lago and what I, what I think went on there. And I think the consensus, it seems like to those people who are conservative, the people on right, the pundits on the right, is that this was really a fishing expedition. Uh, they're trying to prevent Donald Trump from running for president again. So therefore, they couldn't get him on all the other things they tried because he didn't do them. Uh, but maybe if they got into his house, into his papers, into his things, they could find all kinds of things that they couldn't get any other way. And that's what a search warrant will do. When you get a search warrant, a judge commands you to go to a location and search it. Uh, you're in there. Uh, you can go through anything. Even if the warrant says you can only go in big drawers or in locked cabinets uh, that are the size of a gun cabinet or something like that. Once you're there, what's to stop you? Now, integrity is what's supposed to stop you. Uh, I know when I teach people how to write a search warrant, and we went over this on a previous uh, in, uh, previous episode, so I'm not going to go too depth into it, but 
just as a reminder, when you write your affidavit, you're looking for specific things in a specific place and it should be there now. It has to be fresh. So if I'm looking for uh, documents, well, then I can pretty much go anywhere. Documents might be stored, right? And that's kind of what this warrant was. They were not very specific uh, in the documents they were looking for, but you got to figure, what, what's, the, what's the chances in our modern world that this appeal uh, or any cases, any case work that comes up about this will end up in a court that goes by the Constitution. Uh, I'm going to say uh, our courts have all been politicized now. You have uh, justices who are uh, conservative that go by the Constitution, and you have liberal judges that uh, overlook the Constitution. Don't worry about the Constitution. Go against the Constitution. And there's really nothing you can do about it because it goes to an appeals court where they agree with them. So I think we're in, we're in a bad way, but the president is, uh, is, is fighting back, and he wants a, uh, now he wants a master to go over them. A master is a person who reviews everything um, and then lets everybody know what should be seen and what shouldn't be seen, as opposed to, uh, you know, we're going to get this, uh, hopefully we're going to get this affidavit. And you know it's going to be redacted to the point of nothing. Everything's going to be blacked out. There's going to be nothing in there that's going to help us. This is ongoing right now, and this matters to everyone, Republican, Democrat, everyone. If they can do this and we allow this to happen, we don't find out what the real thing was. And people are saying, if they don't find a smoking gun that Trump was, was selling uh, material to the Russians, um, if we don't find that, if it's anything less than that, then we've crossed the line we never should have crossed, and I don't know we can come back from it. Uh, this will now be the precedent of the future, and whoever's got power, if they also have the uh the set of uh, cojones with them to say, hey, uh, let's find out about Joe Biden's uh, uh, finances. You know, if you have a Republican president next time in the Republican D Department of Justice, let's see uh, how he got his money. And now they can find something just off the laptop that they'd say he probably has records in his house and go into his house and all his places and go through everything. And I bet you find all kinds of interesting things there, wouldn't you? Would that be the right thing to do? I don't know that it will be, but we didn't start this game. So we'll see. Uh, I don't believe the Republicans have the guts to do anything like this. I find that they're, they're uh, too weak need. most of them, not all of them. Some of them are pretty good, but most of them are too weak need to retaliate and do this when they get power. Uh, that's probably the right thing because we shouldn't continue this kind of nonsense because it's political witch huntery is what we have going on out there. So what else is going on in our world? We are, we are looking at um, the pr preliminary report from the Texas uh, House of Representatives came out. Now, it's a preliminary report on the shooting at the Uvalde, uh, in the Uvalde School District at the Robb Elementary School. Uh, it, it's a horrible situation. And, and as a law enforcement officer, you know, police don't like to criticize publicly other police officers. Uh, but sometimes we miss out on the ability to learn lessons learned if we don't look at things properly. So when we see an officer uh, gets involved in something where they, they made bad mistakes and they end up getting hurt or killed, nobody wants to, nobody wants to judge that or, or talk about it because, you know, obviously it feels like you're attacking the officer. But I think in reality, we have got to consider these things and, and look at them uh, so that we can learn, so that we don't do things again, so things don't happen again in the future. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the, uh, the attack in Uvalde. The whole idea when we look at this situation, 
to study it to try and figure out what happened is not to is not to blame the law enforcement. It's not to blame the school people. It's 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 to understand what can we learn from what happened there, so that we can be safer in our schools, our businesses, and our law enforcement teams can respond better. So the idea is to identify what you learn from those attacks to prevent future ones. I, what I'm going to talk about here is going to be about those kind of responses and what we can do. Um, but it's, it's not in purpose. It's not about Uvalde, though I'm going to use the Uvalde school shooting as a backdrop to see what lessons we could learn here. All right, so first of all, you can download the Texas House of Representatives interim report on the events at the Robb Elementary School. It's available online. You go on the internet and just look it up. Lots of different uh, news services have it. You can, you can look at it right on their, on their website. There's a lot of very good information, a lot of very good information in that report about the shooter, about the school, about the police response, about all the things that, that we're talking about. Now, in, in an event like this, or any big event, when it first happens, there is a, uh, there's a rush to report Right? And I'm not blaming anybody for that. It's just a reality. It's a rush to report, to get it out, to talk about it, to say what happened. And then we see all the talking heads come out and they, they want to talk about it. And initially, most of the time, the information that comes out is wrong. There is some information. Oh, there was a shooting at the Robb Elementary School. And then what happened and what didn't happen. And, and the facts will change over the course of time. We know some of the criticism here is that the police officers, especially the chief of police of the school district police, didn't respond appropriately. He made a bad judgment, uh, and it may or may not have cost lives. All right. So when we look at this report, and I'm suggesting you go download it, go look at it, it's the Texas House of Representatives Interim Report on the Events at the Robb Elementary School. You just Google that, and you'll, you'll be able to find it. It is an interim report. It is not the final report. All right, so it gives us some information, but we have to keep that in mind. Uh, it does reveal the investigation that the House of Representatives did. They interviewed a lot of people. They looked at a lot of things. Uh, and it can help us to understand some of those things and what went on there. All right, so we want to be able to understand who did what and when. There's been a lot of stories, right? Oh, they came through a propped door. The door was propped open. That's how we got in. Well, I do threat assessments for schools, businesses, religious facilities, just about any place people gather. I go to these facilities and I look at them. And the purpose of a threat assessment is to see the place in its entirety, right? So if I'm going to do a school, let's talk about a school. You want to understand what are the threats to that school, right? Is the school in an area where you have uh, local threats, all right? Or is it... Uh, an internal threat. So there's internal and external kind of threats. So when we look at it, first thing I want to see is the area that the school is in. Is it in a high crime area? Is it in a low crime area? Is it a rural school? Is it an urban school? Is it a suburban school? Where, where is the school located and what is it like around that school district? So we know in, in some districts that are rural. Uh, there's, there's no neighborhoods around them. They're set out uh, further from the downtown or whatever, and the schools are kind of on their own. Well, there, you're not worried about neighborhood crime going on that could spill over into the school. You're more worried about the internal threat, 
Now, what is the internal threat? The internal threat is the person or people that we allow into our buildings. These will be students, staff, visitors, delivery people, uh, anyone who has permission to be inside of a school building where your children are, where my children are. So these are the people that are there. These are where most of the attacks come from. Mostly they come from students, uh, but sometimes they can be former students who come back, uh, such as Nuvaldi. Uh, the, the shooter apparently went to that school and he had some difficulties while he was there. And I'm going to give you some information that this report reveals that I find very interesting uh, and helps us to, to maybe understand how we can look for potential signs of dangerous before, before they strike. So the internal threat then is those people we know that we open the door for, we let them in. The external threats are people that we don't want in. We don't know them. They're not part of our school staff. They're not a student. They're not a family member. They're not a uh, specific visitor who's supposed to be there. They're not a delivery person we're waiting for. This is the person who attacks the building uh, in order to do damage, to hurt people that has no association with the school. Or they could be a former student who no longer have access to just go in the school. They have to ring the bell like everybody else and be we have to have a purpose to be in the school. Uh, as that. So the outside threat, the external threat, are usually strangers in most cases who have some problem and they have decided to choose the school to attack. Most of the attacks are internal based. Right? They're a student who has a problem, mental problems, uh, other issues, and they attack their, their classmates. And that's, that's the same for the, for the workplace. So for the workplace, when we see violence at a workplace, a place where you work, maybe a warehouse, an office building, whatever, is that the, the attacker is usually an internal threat, a person who works there or who has recently been fired uh, or has had disciplinary problems there, or they too have mental problems, drinking problems, whatever, and they decide to attack their fellow workers for whatever reason. A lot of times the management is targeted because you got written up, you got fired, you had a problem, whatever. So we have to understand the difference between an internal threat and an external threat. All right, now, in, in the Robb Elementary School, an interesting thing uh, was taking place. The shooter apparently had attended that school, and in his fourth grade year, when he was in fourth grade at the Robb Elementary School, he had a, a personally difficult time. Uh, this is what's reported in the Texas House of Representatives report. He had a personally difficult time. Uh, he felt he was bullied, he was picked on, he was very uncomfortable. Uh, and and this, his parents in the school had made it known, let the school know that this was happening. When you read the report, you find that um, the school was aware of this. And they say, well, that turned out to be a good year uh, for, for the shooter in his fourth grade year in school. Uh, it turned out he, he wasn't bullied. The bullied was handled hand, uh, properly. Well, then you talk to his family and friends who were interviewed, and they said, uh, no, it wasn't really handled. Uh, he was picked on by a lot of people. He was ostracized. Um, they picked him because sometimes he wore the same clothes for several days because he, he was living in poverty and he had a difficult home life. Uh, that doesn't discount the fact that he went and killed people. That's not an excuse. There's a lot of people who are uh, poor, who are socioeconomically deprived, and they don't go and kill people. So I'm making no excuses for this kid. I'm simply bringing up, we found out some things about him. Now, the fourth grade, um, how that becomes significant is that in the report, you read it, you find out that 
the classrooms that he attacked where he killed everyone were the fourth grade classes that he used to be in. So I find that interesting. He went to that. The other fact uh, I find interesting is that in the Uvalde school, like many other schools, at the, the end of the school year, uh, a lot of districts will allow uh, high school kids who attended the elementary schools to come back uh, and walk through the school and, you know, reminisce about their time in the school and meet the teachers and see, see people that they knew back in the day. And that's a, that's a big deal. Lots of districts do that. Well, on May 24th, which was the day of the uh, Robb Elementary School attack, the shooter showed up there thinking that was the day all these high school kids were going to come back. Uh, he was 18 years old. Um, he had been removed from the school because he had all kinds of problems. Uh, and he attacked the fourth grade class. And it was supposed to be the day when all these other students who would be his age would be there. So was he targeting people? Was he targeting former classmates? Is that why he went there? Did he, did he go there to attack the fourth grade? Was that his draw uh, to going to that elementary school? All right. Unfortunately, for the shooter whose plan was to maybe shoot these uh, other kids who were high school kids, they had actually come to the school the day before. The walkthrough event for seniors was the day before, on the 23rd. Uh, so lucky for them, they weren't there when he showed up. Uh, but these, these are interesting facts that you find out from the report. And we'll go through some of them uh, as we're talking because they are um, interesting and help us understand. So the question we want to ask, though, is, you know, will this, is this the last school that will be attacked? Is this the last school? Is this the, now we, we've had enough. Now we're going to figure this out. We're going we're to do the right thing. And going forward, we're going to look for the signs of potential violence. We're going to identify dangerous people. We're going to harden up our schools. We're going to do security, all that kind of stuff. Is that the chance? Well, you have to understand, statistics tell us a lot. Uh, in the year 2021 was the year of the highest incidence of school shootings that we have on record in the year 2021. In the year 2022 uh, has already matched the number of attacks from 2021. It's going to be apparently the worst year ever since school began. And school is just about to open. If it hasn't opened in many places, it will open in a lot more places in the next month or so. So the answer to the question, unfortunately, I believe, is no. It is most likely not the last attack on a school that we're going to see. So what do we do and why is that? Well, in, in my travels, when I travel around and I do school threat assessments, I find... Uh, varying degrees of concern uh, about school shootings. I find a varying degrees of tolerance for the things you have to do to secure the school. I find a lack, a lack of knowledge on a lot of people, law enforcement included, on what to look for. And then I find a lot of budgetary concerns. You know, schools don't always have gigantic budgets. They do have big budgets, most of them, but they don't have gigantic budgets. And since they've never had a problem before, they say, what is considered the most dangerous thing a person could ever say is uh, it'll never happen here. Uh, think about that. You know, school says, it'll never happen here. I'm not spending the money. Uh, what about businesses? Uh, it'll never happen here. Not at our business. Uh, and then it turns around and happens. Turns out in businesses, uh, commercial locations, a full 69% of commercial locations, retail, commercial businesses do not have real plans and don't do real uh, training of their staff 
uh, they don't drill, they don't prepare. So when you figure a full two-thirds of active shooters take place in places other than the schools, all these other places are vulnerable. Uh, businesses, warehouses, movie theaters, religious facilities. Everyone, unfortunately, in this day and age has to prepare and do the right thing. So when I go out, and I usually do large, uh, I do large events where we bring lots of districts in and I try and train them on lots of different topics uh, on how to plan and prepare. That's what the program is called, Plan and Prepare. It's available to you. If somebody out there wanted it, you could reach out to me and I can get the program to you, to your district, to your, to your school people, to your community, whatever. Uh, plan and prepare. It's how to plan and prepare to respond to violence. And it, it covers everything from tactics and statistics and understanding how these things unfold, uh, as well as what you can do to prevent violence, how you can spot dangerous people, the equipment you should have in your facilities, how to liaison with the police to make sure they're involved, and how to do the right kind of drills, all that kind of stuff. All of that is incredibly important if you're going to be able to withstand an attack in your business, your school, your religious facility, whatever. All right, so the question, we jump back to it. Is the attack at the Rob School, Rob Elementary, the last one we're going to see? And unfortunately, I think it's no. So let's go back in time a little bit. Going back to uh, March of 2020, when the pandemic started, uh, we decided we were going to close down. We were going to shut down the world, right, for what, 15 days to uh, flatten the curve and everyone would be okay. Well, we didn't, we didn't come back together after 15 days. Uh, we started moving along. We went through March, then we did April. And then in early May, there was talk that, okay, we're probably going to open our schools back in June and get everybody back, finish the year, and we'll move on. And at that point, I had concerns. As a person who does this kind of work, uh, I understand that the number one trait of a person who shoots up their school or their workplace is a feeling of disconnection, that they don't belong there. They don't feel connected to the people or to the place. That's the number one trait. And when I say trait, that's a specific word. It is not a profile. You cannot profile a shooter because they're all very, very different, but they do have some specific traits in common that we can look for. All right, so I write for Campus Safety Magazine. And if you were to go and Google um, Joseph Pangaro, uh, out there, you would see all the articles that I write, and you would see the campus safety ones. You'd see other other programs I've done. So in in um, at the end of April, I started to say, "Wow, since the number one trait is disconnection, dislocation, I was concerned that if we did come back together in June, that there were lots and lots of kids who were not on our uh, our, our radar to be potentially dangerous, who may now, because of the disconnection." may be potentially dangerous, and our workplaces too. That was a concern I had. That was a, a thought that, based on my training and my experience with this, understanding what leads people to these things in many cases, that this is the thing that we would have to be worried about. Well, that was if we were only apart for a couple of months. We didn't come back in June of 2020. Uh, most of 2021, we missed also. Uh, and as we started to come back, uh, unfortunately, my 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 prediction, I guess you would call it, um, my hypothesis that there would be people on the radar that weren't on the radar that would now be dangerous turned out to be true. As we see, 2021 became uh, the number one year for school attacks, and now 2022 is even worse as we're all getting together full-time. So that was my concern, 
at the point and it was proved out and, and it was correct. And we can only learn from it. So there's an article out there that I wrote uh, and it's called, uh, Can We See Potential Danger Before We Are Attacked? Uh, it was widely publicized. It was pushed around. A lot of people read it. I suggest you go read it. And what it, what it does is basically describe the things we can see. What can we look for in a person who may be potentially violent? Do they do and say things that would lead us to believe they are potentially violent? Is that something we can identify? And then the key is to intervene before they attack us. That's the idea, right? So that's why I wrote that article, because there are things we can see uh, before someone attacks us. Like, what are they saying to their friends? What are they saying to people in general? Are they making comments? Are they on social media making comments? The kid in Uvalde was making comments all over social media. Uh, he was violent. He was beginning to get more violent in his games. He was, uh, his disaffection was clear, so much so that in the social media world that he, 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 he operated in, uh, he played a lot of video games and violent video games. And the people online that he interacted with, because of what he said and did during these uh, interactions, they started calling him the school shooter. That was the nickname these kids online gave him because of his commentary and the things he was talking about. Uh, we find that many people that engage in this become fascinated with weapons, and they start talking about weapons, trying to acquire weapons. The Uvalde kid did exactly that. He was asking people to buy him guns and Thank goodness, early on, they refused. He finally, when he turned 18, based on state law, he had no negative background. Uh, he was allowed to buy guns and ammunition. And he bragged about this online. His online persona was that he was becoming a, a dangerous person. And people, that's why they called him the school shooter, right? So these things can be seen. Uh, we can notice these kind of social media outbursts. Uh, not only that, but people that are going to do this have a tendency to uh, write things and draw things and say things, like I said, to other people that seem concerning, that seem upsetting, that seem, uh, gee, that doesn't sound right uh, coming from a person. Matter of fact, on the day of the shooting, if you read that report, you can see some of his text messages uh, that he had with a, a kid in Germany, apparently. He was, he was connecting to uh, different people, I guess through the gaming world, and then he would text with them. And he tells this one person that he was having a big-time problem with his grandmother and that she was uh, having a problem with paying for a cell phone or doing something with a cell phone, and she was threatening to turn it off. And these, the, the text messages that you can actually see in the report, uh, he's talking about, she's on the phone right now. She's right on the phone with AT&T right now, and this and that. You know what? And then he says, I just shot my grandmother in the face. Now I'm going to go shoot up an elementary school. That's what he texted social media texted to this kid in Germany, and the kid in Germany texts back, cool. What was that all about? Cool. Did he really believe him, or does he just think he was running his mouth? I don't know. But we're going to talk more about this when we come back from the break, because this is important. There are a lot of lessons to be learned here for you, your workplace, your children's school, anywhere. We can see things, and we can learn a lot from what happened in Robb Elementary School. This is Lieutenant Joe. I'll be back in a minute. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulpidone iodine-based nasal spray, Cofix RX. 
They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the CofixRx banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com where we're healing America one person at a time. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. Lieutenant Joe here for Chasing Justice on the America Out Loud Radio Network. And so in our first segment there, we started talking about the attack on the Uvalde School and, and how we can look for that. The reason that I tell you that is that I'm doing a, a webinar on September 8th uh, for Camper Safety Magazine, and we're going to go through the whole thing that day. We're going to talk about it. We're going to look for the lessons learned. It's not about Uvalde. It's not about... Uh, attacking the police or the school people or, or the victims or anybody involved in, in that. I just use it as a background to see where we can learn lessons for things that actually happen, not just what we think happened there. Uh, and we'll talk about the prop door and we'll talk about all that, all the rumors that were out there uh, before, before the incident took place. But before we do that, I just want to tell you uh, about something that I really like and you've heard me say it before is Healthy Cell, the Immune Boost product. I got to tell you, e even better week I had last week. I started to feel like I had a cold coming on. I did. I said to Miss Kathy, you know, I, I think, I don't know, I think I might be getting a, uh, a little sinus problem because I get them all the time, as I've told you a couple hundred times by now. And I started to feel, you know, a little bit of vertigo because, you know, your head clogs up and this and that. And I said, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to see where this goes. Well, I, I, I take the, uh, the healthy cell, immune boost, and... Surprisingly, I woke up the next day and it seemed like it was gone. And I was concerned because I know the feeling. When I start to get that vertigo, my head feels clogged, my voice sounds different, I know I'm on the road to infection. Now, I haven't had one in a long time and I attribute it completely to the Healthy Cell uh, and the Immune Boost product because it really has helped me. Uh, and this one disappeared quickly. So I'm telling you, if you're looking for something to help boost your immune system, immune system your immune system, uh, to help you fend off uh, colds and 
sinus problems or whatever else you got going on, I suggest you give it a try. Uh, they advertise here on the network. You can find them easily. It's Healthy Cell Immune Boost, and I wanted to make sure I talked about that uh, for a second and let you know because I, I keep you up to it. If I, if I didn't think it was good, I wouldn't tell you about it. All right, so we'll jump back into uh, our discussion on what happened uh, at the Robb Elementary School. So there were lots of signs, and, and the report details lots of the signs. So what are some other signs we can see physically from people when they're, they're building up? Because keep in mind, people that attack the school, uh, whether it's internal threat or external threat, or your business, your workplace, your warehouse, your church, people don't wake up that day and say, I think I'll go kill people. That's not what happens. It's a buildup. It's a buildup, and uh, people get, they get upset, they get angry, they start to do things, things that we can see. Now, not every single time, but in most cases, there are some signs that can be identified as potentially building towards violence, and we can see them, okay? So the kid in Uvalde did something else. He started wearing um, dark-colored clothing, which his friends started to take note of. This guy's wearing dark-colored clothing. What's that? You know, what, what's that all about? Well, that is something that people, adults and, and kids who attacked schools and businesses and homes and stuff, they do start to change their dress. They start to identify uh, with an attacker and, and, and a military person. And, and they, they see because they think they're going to war. In their head, they're going to do an attack. You have to dress the way it is. So go back and look at any pictures of the Columbine killers. They were dressed in battle dress uniforms. Uh, the kid at Sandy Hook dressed all in black. This kid in Uvalde started dressing all in black, and that's what he wore. Uh, it's very, very common. The, the adult who attacked uh, Dallas uh, was wearing BDUs and, and uh, military-style clothing and boots. It's a very common sign. So what I tell people, if you have someone who is of concern and you start to notice that their clothing changes, uh, they have a fascination with weapons, they start making comments. Usually they're veiled comments. You know, a veiled threat would be something like, uh, you know, uh, I fail one more test and uh, this school's going to find out they shouldn't mess with me, right? Now, is, did that person say they're going to come back and kill everybody? No, they didn't. But is what they said a threat? If I fail and if they fail me again, uh, this school's going to find out, right, they can't do this to me kind of thing? Yes, that's absolutely a threat. Um, now, when you talk to the person, they could say, oh, no, I just meant that uh, I would quit the football team or I would quit the, quit the school, school or whatever. Because people parse their words so that if law enforcement gets involved, they never said they would kill everybody. Sometimes they do come out and say, I will kill everybody. Uh, they say, I'll go shoot them. I'll shoot them up. I have a gun. I hate these people. Uh, and then people don't always respond. So we look and we say, if we had reasons to believe someone was working towards violence, why would people not come forward and tell? Whether it's school kids or people who work in a business. And we find that there's really two reasons that are kind of similar for adults and kids. The first reason kids don't come forward is that they don't want to be a rat. They don't want to be the person that comes forward and tells or they're concerned that, you know, what if I'm wrong? What if I misinterpreted what Bobby said? Uh, and then everyone's going to know I did. I said something, and then I get confronted. Because what do we do? Uh, you go and tell somebody, hey, listen, Bobby's made a kill list, and he's talking about shooting people. And then they go grab Bobby, 
and they bring Bobby and little Joey down to the office to say, hey, Bob, Joey says, you got to kill this. You're doing this. Now you involved me. And I don't want to be involved in this. I just gave you the information. I don't want to be involved. Uh, and so that's the first thing. The second thing is that um, they, they're concerned that there's, there's no one they can trust to tell. And when I hear that, I, I say, well, what do you mean? They don't trust their parents. They don't trust their teacher. And really, when you dig deeper, it's they don't. They don't trust anyone to tell that, that that's not going to overreact, okay? I'm just giving you information. Remember, I don't want to be involved. I'm giving it to you. You investigate. You're the you're officials. You're the school people, right? So we got to keep that in mind. When it comes to adults, you know, they don't want to get involved. They hear people making comments. Uh, they hear people saying things. And, you know, if they go f come forward and say something, where do they have to go? They have to go to HR. They have to be part of an investigation. They have to answer questions. They don't want to be involved either. So that, that's often what happens. People don't want to be involved. So whether it's school, business, church, you should have a mechanism for people to report things anonymously. And then you should use due diligence to investigate them properly, right? When do you call the police? When do you not call the police? When is it something you can handle internally? Well, that depends on the kind of threat, right? So the more serious and believable the threat sounds, the more you have to take it serious, okay? So that's the idea. So this kid in Uvalde, uh, he, he had a lot of signs, a lot of social media stuff, fascinated with guns, talking about guns, getting guns. And then he actually told somebody, I'm going to go shoot in elementary school. And they responded, cool. Uh, and then the kid went over and got to the school. And of course he did. He did the damage that, that he did there and hurt lots of people. All right, so the question is, can we prevent the next attack? Is it possible to prevent the next attack? Will there be another attack? My opinion, there will be. Unfortunately, I think that's that's the truth. Um, like I said, I, I go to a lot of places and I, I do large groups and, and I'll ask the group, a bunch of school people, different school districts, and I'll say, who still leaves their school doors open? And if you have a hundred different officials there from schools, you know, hundred different school districts represented, you're going to get three, four hands that are going to go up. And I usually say, well, why do you leave your doors open in this modern world? And I say, well, a lot of the parents demand that they have access to the school immediately if they want to go in there and see their kid or see what's going on in the classroom. And the school board said, uh, okay, well, we'll leave the door unlocked and let them just come in. And then normally they'll have a greeter at the front door. And usually it's a parent, a retired person, volunteer, who's just simply sitting at a desk uh, with the door open. Very, very dangerous, bad move, lock our doors. That's the very first thing everybody should do is just lock your doors. Lock your doors so that you can see the threat coming. You, you know, when I talk about uh, shooters, schools, businesses, anywhere, what I say is that the reality is that it comes down to time equals life. You have to have time to respond to the violence. So having the door locked and then there's stuff you can put on the, on the glass. It's called window glazing. There's lots of products, a lot of people that make it, a lot of different companies. Uh, you put on the glass, it's crystal clear. And then the, the product is uh, sealed to the frame with a, uh, like a caulk. And what happens is uh, you can shoot through it, but you can't rip the bullet holes open to put your hand in and unlock the door. Uh, if you were hitting it with a sledgehammer, it would probably take you two to three minutes to knock the glass out of the window. In that two to three minutes, you have an opportunity to uh, start your lockdown procedure or to flee or whatever you're going to do, whatever your procedures are. But that's the very first thing you do. Lock the doors and glaze them, them doors because... Most of our shooters come through the front door or the back door. Why? Isn't that where we come through? 
we come through front doors and back doors? Of course. So that's how that kind of happens. So we want to keep that in mind. Uh, tell your schools, glaze the doors and uh, lock them. Make sure they're locked. All right. So to prevent the attack, you have to look at other lessons learned in the past. From each, each one of these terrible attacks, we can learn lessons. We got to identify the signs of a potentially dangerous person, and then we have to uh, intervene. We have to have a program. So like in the state of New Jersey now, the governor has signed a law um, in early August that said every school district and private school in the state must create uh, student threat assessment teams. That's a good thing. Uh, people should have done it voluntarily, but they, you know, sometimes they don't go until they get pushed. Uh, and a student threat assessment team is made up of a team of employees in the district. It should be made up of lots of different people. It should be made up of teachers, administrators, uh, counselors. If you have school resource officers, that person should be on the on the team. And what the team is trained to do is to evaluate any kind of a threat that comes in, whether it's a, uh, a verbal threat, they heard a rumor, it's a social media threat, it's a note, uh, or a direct threat. The person said they're going to do something. So you evaluate the threat. The team gets together, evaluates the threat. Is it a low-level threat, a medium-level threat, or a high-level threat? Uh, do we bring the police in immediately? Is this, is this imminent? Is this person going to do something imminently? Uh, same thing for businesses. I suggest they have staff trained as well because sometimes people disgruntled people angry people say things at work and we say ah, that's the way they are he's like that she's that way and then they come back and attack us and i say well did you see signs well we did see some signs but uh, we didn't think it was serious in this day and age you gotta take any kind of a threat seriously so the school districts should be training threat assessment teams i do that kind of training i come out and i teach the school the different kinds of threats. I teach the team how to respond. And then you have to have a program at your district to intervene. What are we going to do? How do we intervene? And then what do we do once we identify the person? If you identify a student who's dangerous, what do you do to monitor that student to make sure what the problem is uh, is addressed so that you de-escalate them, calm them down so they don't attack you, right? Kind of makes sense. Uh, but that's, that's the kind of things that we need to be doing. Um, we don't always do those things. We don't always do the right things. We don't always understand to do it. And I'm always shocked when I find these districts that don't take it seriously. Now you think, oh, we're a rural school. Nothing's going to happen here. Well, um, the, uh, the Amish school a few years back that was attacked by the milkman. Uh, he had a problem with the school. He had a problem with the people. He busted into school, killed people, and was going to rape all the young girls in the school. This was a very rural place. So if you think you're safe because you're rural, you're not. Everyone has to be prepared, right? Be aware and prepare. We don't be paranoid. We be aware and prepare. All right, the other thing we need to know to prevent the attack is what, what is the police response? We've got to understand the police response, uh, whether it's right or wrong. Or did they do right things or wrong things? Does your local department train properly? Did they train in your schools, in your religious facilities? Do they do these things? Does the leadership of your police department take it seriously? Are they concerned, right? Uh, so these are all things that each community has to deal with. You have to understand the value of equipment. What if, you know, in Uvalde, we, they talked about one of the things in the report was that the chief of police backed everyone out when he thought that it had gone from an active shooter event to a barricaded subject event. Uh, and then he backed everybody out. Well, we also see in there that at one point, uh, the chief was talking to another law enforcement official, and he said, hey, listen, man, all we got is pistols. That guy got rifles. 
all right? Uh, so do they have the right equipment to respond? Do you do proper drills? Are you physically and mentally prepared? Your police department to go in there, this is, this is a very highly charged situation. People are shooting guns. And we saw there, uh, there's indications that the officers actually got to the door of the classroom where the killer was uh, very quickly, and there were shots fired, and they backed off, and they didn't go forward again for another 117 minutes. Um, now, why was that? Well, they claimed they didn't have the right equipment, they didn't have bulletproof shields, they didn't have the right kind of weapons, uh, all those kind of things. That can be true, that you're not prepared, but you have to understand um, how your police are going to respond, what they're going to do, and each police department has to train realistically and properly. All right? And the last thing we want to be able to do is take all this information we learn and we want to apply it to our own schools and businesses. Are we doing the right thing now? Are we prepared? Do we have the right equipment? And uh, we'll, we'll try and see if we can cover some of those things. So what I wanted to look at was the actual attack. All right, let's look at the actual attack based on the Texas House of Representatives report, the information in there. So on May 20, 20, 24, 2022, uh, a lone gunman made an announcement on social media to a acquaintance that he shot his grandmother at home and he was going to shoot up a school. At that point, he stole his grandmother's pickup truck. Now, he didn't have a license. He wasn't experienced, but uh, he stole her pickup truck. And he left the area. While he was driving, now, there all these distances, his grandmother's house, the, all the locations involved in this were, were not far apart. Uh, he didn't get too far away and he crashed the truck. They have a ditch, drainage ditches. Uh, there in that area, and apparently he, he rode the truck down into a drainage ditch and, and crashed. Very close by was a funeral home, and it was a couple of guys standing outside the funeral home, and apparently they saw the crash. Now, the timeline here is kind of important, and this is all based on the report, so go get the report and you can follow along. Uh, I'll even give you page numbers where you can go find these things. So the uh, the 911 call comes from the fire, from the uh, funeral home people, when they see the crash, they think it's a crash. They call 911 at 11.28 in the morning, 11.28 a.m. Uh, is a crash. Well, these guys went over there to see if they could help the crash victim. You know, they're good Samaritans. They go over there, and he starts shooting at them. Uh, so they, when they call 911, they said, hey, there's a crash, and a guy's shooting a gun. Many officers got that call. Shots fired, crash, and shots fired. So they all start responding. Now, you have to understand a couple of things. Which police departments are we talking about? In rural areas, often you have a small police department surrounded by a larger one. Maybe you have a sheriff's office. Maybe you have a county police force, all these kind of things. In this area, the Uvalde School District was covered by the Uvalde Township Police, you know, the municipal police in the area. And then around, I think, 2018, they decided, hey, let's get our own police force. Not uncommon. A lot of school districts do it. Uh, they start their own police force. And from what we can find out, they had six officers. They had a chief of police, a lieutenant, and who was their detective, I understand, and then four patrol officers. So you had uh, six officers, six police officers in the Uvalde Central School District. Right? That's what they were. And they were supposed to handle the safety and security and police work in the schools. Not a bad thing. Here's the problem there. Um, they had nine schools in Uvalde and six officers. So immediately, what's that tell you? Is there an officer at every school? 
No, there's not. Uh, we had roving officers. They would go to one school for a while. Even in the report, they talk about the officers would do uh, foot patrols. They would show up at a school, and they'd spend 15 to 45 minutes, depending on the day. They'd walk through the school, and then they'd leave and go to a different school. The high school is where the police chief and the police department's uh, headquarters, I guess, was located. So they were there all the time. Um, Rob Elementary School did not have a formally assigned police officer. So they were just covered by the roving officer. Right? So it's 1120 a.m. The 911 call comes in that a car crash and shots fired and a bunch of officers start responding from the township police and I guess maybe the sheriff's department start showing up. They were there within minutes. Uh, by the time they got there, they were told that the shooter who had fired at the funeral home people uh, got out of the truck and went towards the school. He went towards the Uvalde School District. Uh, when he got there, there was a fence. There a perimeter fence, okay? That's a good security feature, isn't it? A perimeter fence, keep people out. Isn't that what we want? Well, the fence was about five feet high. This young 18-year-old kid was very healthy and strong. He threw his backpack over the uh, over the five-foot-tall fence, and then he hopped over the fence. So if your fence is not tall enough to keep people from getting through it, it's really not a barricade. It's not a, an obstacle to someone who wants to get on your school property or your business property. If you're going to have fencing, it should be big enough fencing that it keeps people from climbing in. Five-foot-tall is not a lot, and a lot of schools have that five, six-foot-tall fences. You need, you know, 18, 20-foot-tall fence to keep people from climbing over. All right, so he gets over the fence and he starts going towards the school. He's now on the school property. Um, there was a coach out there with the kids. You know, you go out for recess, you go out for different stuff, and there's a coach out there. And this coach saw somebody hop the fence with a gun uh, and apparently shooting towards the school. So this, uh, this coach, she ran towards the classroom getting her kids, let's go, let's go. And then she jumped on her radio and said, uh, lockdown, lockdown. Right? She expected an immediate response hearing the school say, lockdown, lockdown. She didn't hear an immediate response for a lockdown. So what does that tell us? What do we learn from that? Well, if you hear a call from a lockdown, you should immediately go into lockdown. What I find with lots of places when I ask, one of the things I ask is uh, when I interview staff is, are you allowed to call a lockdown? And in some districts, they're, they're very clear on their messaging. And they tell everybody in the district, yes, if you see danger, you see somebody walking up to the school with a gun, you see something, you can put the school in lockdown using the electronics we have, using radio, using the intercom, you're allowed to do it. I see a lot more schools that say no. Um, teachers and staff are not allowed to call a lockdown. They have to call the office and tell the office. And often the office people say, well, we have to have find the principal because the principal puts the building in lockdown. This, I think, is a mistake because, remember, time equals life. What if the principal's not in the office, doesn't have a radio on, doesn't have a communication? How about spotty cell service in the schools? Lots of them have spotty cell service, spotty Wi-Fi for uh, communication devices and stuff. All right, so this school, this, this teacher, coach, called for a lockdown and didn't hear an immediate response back that the school's going into lockdown. One of the arriving officers who had heard that he was running towards the school goes over there and sees a person in dark clothes and thought it was the killer. This officer asked the supervisor for permission to shoot the person. And the, res the response did not come from the supervisor. The supervisor was thinking about it. What if it's children? What if you shoot and you miss and you hit, the, you hit a kid? 
So the, the supervisor apparently didn't respond. It's a good thing because later investigation determined that the person in dark clothes was actually the coach who was huddling the kids and, and trying to bring them across, uh, across into the school to get back into safety. So did the officer see the killer or did the officer actually see this coach? So it's a good thing, I guess, that he didn't shoot without knowing for sure. I, at this point, the school's chief of police uh, was at the high school. He heard a, a report of the radio because he can hear, hey, you know, on, the, on that radio they have that they're shooting. He goes to his vehicle and he races on over there. Good thing, man. He's supposed to do that. He's a leader. He gets on over there. The police officers in the Uvalde School District Police Department apparently carried two radios. They carried a school district radio, which was pretty good. Apparently that had good reception and worked well. And then they carried a police department radio, which did not have such good reception. Um, that radio was spotty. You know, you would get a signal, you wouldn't get a signal. And the chief didn't have him hooked to his belt, apparently. He was fumbling with them, uh, as, as uh, was described in the report. And when he got near the fence... Uh, he dropped the radios there and left them there. Uh, and then he proceeded to go towards the school. So now you have the chief of police, and page 44 in the report tells you that. Um, he had dropped his radio. He has no communication devices. So first of all, now, now the leader of the event is now cut off from making critical calls. Right? So we want to make sure we always have our radio equipment with us at all times. The school response Okay, the principal said that she heard the call for lockdown and then she activated the electronic system that they had, the electronic notification system that would tell everybody that there was a lockdown. She said she had some difficulty when she was doing this, not because of the system, the system was great, but because it was Wi-Fi based system and their school Wi-Fi was not that good. I find this all the time, everywhere. So let's, let's take a minute and, and pause here. When, when I talk about um, school safety in or any safety anywhere. I try and break it down for people so they understand it's complex. There's so much going on. What can we do? So I broke it down into uh, what I call, and I wrote an article, again, you can find this article out there, called The Three Pillars of Survival. And this covers every place. So breaking it down, what do people need to concern themselves with to make a secure facility? Well, the three pillars of survival can cover that for you. If you cover each one of these pillars as best as you can, it gives you a better chance. So the first one is preparation. The first pillar is preparation. That means getting the right equipment, training your people properly, doing good drills, making sure you liaison with your police so all your stakeholders understand what to do, when to do it, your staff knows what to do, the kids know what to do, and you have the right equipment. The second pillar is communication. How do you communicate to everybody on your campus, on your school, everywhere that uh, there's danger and we need to lock down, we need to evacuate, we need to, whatever it is, your, whatever your plan tells you to do, how do you communicate? So the communication is the second pillar. And we see here where they had a great system, but the principal seemed to think her Wi-Fi was, was not working correctly or some kind of problem with it. And then the third pillar of survival is notification. How do you notify the good guy and good girl guns that you have a problem and you need help right now? Right? So is that a phone call? Is that a 911 call? Is that a, uh, a lot of schools have these, you push the button and it sends a recorded message to the police. Do you use an electronic device? What is it that you do? If you cover those three things, preparation, communication, um, and notification, you'll go far down the road. So we start to see with those things in mind uh, where some of these things failed uh, or were problematic uh, for the staff at the school. All right, now our, our time is, is, is running quickly here. Um, so I want to jump forward a little bit. We know uh, 
once the killer got into the school, there was not a propped door. There was a lot of talk about that. The door maybe had been propped earlier. Teachers in schools do prop doors. I, I see more and more people now really getting the idea and trying not to prop doors, but when it's hot, they open the door, they prop it open. In this instance, the door was not propped, as was initially reported, but there were three unlocked doors in the school, and apparently the killer just went through one of the unlocked doors. He went into the, um, he went into the area where the fourth grade classrooms were, and he went into one of the rooms. Now, the room that he went into, it was reported um, that the lock on the door didn't work, was broken, and that people in the school had reported it uh, previously, and it was not repaired. So if you have, you know, do a survey, do maintenance of all your doors and windows, your locks, make sure everything's working is the lesson we learn from that, all right? Because that maybe could have kept him out of the classroom. Then when the police confronted him, there could have been a, a situation there. The police chief, uh, and this is where we'll end for today, maybe I'll, and I'll pick this up again later, lessons learned, is that the police chief said he thought the situation had transitioned from an active shooter to a barricade subject. So these people say, is that possible? Is that happen? Do we do that? Well, it does happen. Because if a person is actively killing people, the police can do one of three things, arrest, contain, or play, apply deadly force. If the person stops killing people and takes hostages, the police are not executioners. They don't just burst into the room and shoot and kill the person because they've already committed crimes. Uh, if they actively start shooting people again, then the officers can use force to eliminate that danger. So in this case, the chief thought it was quiet. He didn't hear any more shots, and he uh, assumed it was a barricade person, and he made his judgments based on that. Um, so this means training is important, right? When do we stop? Should they have breached that door? Uh, my opinion, yes, I would have had my people, even though in the face of gunfire, I would have had them try to find a way to breach the door. And we find out that the door wasn't locked after all. It was a faulty lock, and they could have uh, breached the door just the way the final group of Border Patrol officers breached the door and eliminated the threat. So my friends, uh, this is just a little bit about that. Think about it. Talk to your schools, your businesses. Be safe. Do the right thing. If you need help, reach out to me. I can help you. This is Lieutenant Joe for Chasing Justice, and we will see you down the road. Be a part of the solution, not the problem.